0: My name is Doug, I'm the Interim Lead Pastor here, and uh, I wanted to start off this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever had a really bad day at work? Sure you have. (laughs) I mean, who hasn't, right? You know, but one of those days when nothing seemed to go right, when uh, you got no support from the boss or positive recognition for your work, you know, one of those days when you felt stressed out or frustrated or or just plain lousy. when your work environment was uh, chaotic and there were long, pointless meetings, and then your IT system goes down. Uh, You know, days when you felt the energy just kind of sucked out of you. One of those days uh, when you felt emotionally drained by negative coworkers or a lack of clarity about vision or uh, maybe just a lack of understanding of strategy of the people around you, Um, a high workload. You know, just one of those really bad days at work? Well, if you have, I think you'll enjoy the humor of uh, Steve Mockus. Uh, He wrote a book called Stickman's Really Bad Day, and here's the cover. There it is. And he writes about his purpose for writing this book. He says, Stickman is that guy you see around town, but you don't really know him very well. Everywhere you go, there he is, crossing the street, waiting for the bus, issuing warnings about potential disasters at sea and on land, at the mall, at work. But when he's not offering advice, Steve writes, what does a day in the life of Stickman actually look like? This man navigates the perils of a... Uh, or this c- catastrophe-packed book uses images derived from real signs to follow a continuous narrative as Stickman navigates the perils of a single hilariously bad day. And he writes, Everyone has had that bad day at work that just keeps getting worse. But Stickman's adventures show readers both what a bad day really looks like and that, in the end, it never is really quite as bad as it might seem. It's the perfect pick-me-up when life or a forklift knocks you down. And I thought to myself, That sounds like a fun read, doesn't it? Just about this really bad day in the life of Stickman. Well, folks, today is Palm Sunday, and today was Jesus' worst day on the job. Now I know, I know that we typically think of um, his Good Friday activities as being his really worst day on the job. I mean, after all, he's he's arrested, he's betrayed, he's beaten, he's crucified, and you would think that was the bad day on the job, right? But it wasn't. Palm Sunday was his worst day on the job because Good Friday was the day that was much anticipated in the planning of God. In fact, the Word of God tells us that before the creation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had planned His death, burial, and resurrection to pay for the sins of humanity. It was a very much anticipated, intended moment in Jesus' life. But what's interesting is that Palm Sunday was much worse. And and the reason for that is because the plans they had made for that day, which had been prophesied over 500 years earlier by the prophet Daniel, could have been great, but they weren't. Something wonderful, really wonderful, could have happened that day and didn't. So let me set the stage for you from a little bit earlier. If you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do would you open them to Luke chapter 4? And we're going to look at a couple of passages this morning that tie us back into uh, good, or, uh, Palm, Palm Sunday. And uh, I want to begin with Luke chapter 4, where it begins in verse 14, and it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside, and he taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to, it, handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, and he reads this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Folks, this is Jesus' job description for his work. And he proclaims it to the people there, and he says, I've got five purposes here as the Messiah, as the King. These are five things I want to do in the lives of people. And he says, number one, I want to give you hope for the future. Anybody need hope for the future? He says, I want to preach good news to the poor. Positive, uplifting, good news for those who are desperate. So hope for the future. Secondly, liberty for the enslaved. I want to proclaim freedom for prisoners. Thirdly, I want to give light to people in darkness, recovery of sight to those who are blind. I want to give life to those stuck in old habits, he says, releasing the oppressed. And I want to give joy to the disheartened. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he looked at the people in that synagogue, and he said to them, my job is to be the king who will rule and bring about all of these wonderful changes for people. Of hope and liberty and light and life and joy. And eight days later, he summarized this message for his disciples. In Luke 4:43, he says, "I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent." So let's pause there for just a moment. What's Jesus' job? It is to proclaim the kingdom of God and all of these wonderful qualities of what that kingdom will do in the lives of people to all of Israel and ultimately to the entire world. He says this. This is why I was sent. And so it would be an understatement to say that Jesus was excited about the kingdom of God. If he had written a blog about it, it might have been titled "Everything You've Always Wanted to Know About the Kingdom, But Were Afraid to Ask." If He was on a talk show. The topic might have been people who think we should have a monarchy. If he had run for president, his slogan might have been, It's the kingdom, stupid. (laughs) Right? He was all about the kingdom and what the kingdom of God would do, not only because he was the king, but because his rule would produce amazing change in the lives of those who joined his kingdom. So, for three and a half years he beat that drum about the kingdom of God. And he talked about all that it would do when he called people to join him in his kingdom, and some people did, but not everyone. In fact, there were many people who did not. But on this day, on Palm Sunday, March 30th, 33 AD, we know exactly the day he entered Jerusalem, he was accompanied by a parade of people dancing and singing Uh, right out of the Psalms, the Ascent Psalms of the Old Testament, as they packed into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And the intensity of the crowd was heightened by the fact that he was there. So they're thinking to themselves, Jesus, this great prophet, the doer of miracles, is present. Jesus, the powerful teacher and the wonder worker is here among us. Jesus, the coming king and the raiser of the dead, is on the road with us. And I want you to catch the furor I think that's how we say that word. The excitement of all the crowd of that moment. John 12 captures it for us. Listen to this. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there in Bethany, and they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Poor guy. Die, go to heaven, come back, die, go to heaven. But they didn't want evidence of the power of Jesus. It says, For on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. And so the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! From Psalm 118. And it says, Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it as it was written in Zechariah 9. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. I love verse 16 simply because this was still a process of learning, much like us today. As we think about Jesus and who he is and what is he doing in our world today today, Is he just this miracle worker, or is he truly the king of kings? And it says in verse 16, at first his disciples did not understand all of this. Didn't make a lot of sense to them. It was only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, and they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised from the dead continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Only if it would. So in this parade of people, celebrating the Passover, Jesus' presence, there is not one bored expression, there is not one wearied brow, there is, is not one pensive frown, not one sad face. except for Jesus. While the crowds waved their palm branches, he wept. As the throng shouted, Hosanna to the king! He sobbed. And as the masses geared up for a party, he grieved. What a contrast. Here's this huge crowd. They've seen Lazarus raised. They're excited about this miracle. They, they want to see this Messiah. And as they race toward Jerusalem, Jesus pauses and begins to weep. Notice in John 19, 41, he says, As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city before him, he wept over it. And he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And so hot tears flooded the face of Jesus at this joyous event. Sobs shook his frame while they celebrated This was his worst day on the job ever. And it's because they were truly on the cusp of something incredible that was not to be. In the Greek language, when you see if-then clauses, we see those a lot in English, don't we? If, then. They had three ways of interpreting that, depending on the context. One was, if, but it's not going to happen, then this would have been the outcome. Or if, and it, it actually might happen, we don't know for sure, then this would be the outcome. And if, and you can bet your bottom dollar on it, it's happening, then this will happen. Jesus uses one of those three forms in this passage, and it's the middle one. He says, if, and it could happen. This moment could actually be realized in your lives and the life of Israel. And you notice how he says this here. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Do you sense the, the tenuousness of that? Do you sense the possibility of it, the opportunity of it? And Jesus is ex- he's he's looking around, and he's kind of experimenting, thinking about is this actually gonna happen? Is it gonna work? And he realizes no. And it causes him to weep. The description of his tears in this passage are exactly the same, same description, as the tears of the mothers in Matthew 2, whose children were um, wretched out of their hands by Herod's soldiers and taken to die as Herod searched for that newborn baby. Inconsolable mourning is what it says there. That's the same thing of Jesus's description. It's the same description of the pe- tears of Peter in Matthew chapter 26 as he's denied Christ and he realizes that he sees the face of Christ across the courtyard of, of Herod and of the high priest and, and he with sobbing stumbles into the night. This is the description of Jesus, same words. It's the same description of the mourners in Mark 5, who stood by the deathbed of Jairus' 12-year-old daughter when she passed away, and it says there was loud wailing. I want you to picture this. This is so important for us to understand. On this day that we normally think about the greatness of being presented as king, Jesus saw this moment as the absolute greatest disaster of what could have happened. They were not welcoming him as king. And so he begins to weep over the lost possibilities and weep over the future of these individuals. He is heartbroken. The crowd is hyped, but he's heartbroken because they did not recognize the time of God's coming to them. Such a simple statement. Packed with possibilities. They did not see how this one moment was so unique in their their lives, in their national history. They didn't perceive this was a a once-in-a-lifetime event, that it would never again be presented in exactly the same way. This was the moment, and they didn't understand that they were missing the opportunity to avoid the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., because that's what he describes here, when he says, this could have been a moment of peace, but instead it's all these other things. He's looking 40 years down the road at the destruction of Jerusalem, saying, you could have avoided that. This was the set hour. In God's timetable, this was the moment. The King James records it as the day of your visitation. Uh, The NIV calls it God's coming to you. The Greek calls it episkopos. Does that sound like a familiar term? We use the word episcopal, bishop overseer and in the Greek it literally is saying it's the day that he came to oversee the welfare of his people this is just like a owner of a Redlands Orange Grove who realizes tonight we're gonna have frost and what does he do he goes out that night and he turns on the smudge pots and he gets the windmills going so that his crops don't freeze he's an episkopos; he's overlooking the welfare of his crops it's like a mom who hears a noise in the middle of the night and gets up to check on our kids to make sure they're okay She's an episcopos overseeing the welfare of her children. She's like a, or it's like a bus driver who glances in the rearview mirror to make sure everybody's seated before he puts the pedal to the metal. Right? He's overseeing the welfare of those in his trust, and so Jesus comes as king to oversee the welfare of his people, to keep an eye on their care, to look out for their condition. And the majority of the people miss the moment. Does that sound tragic? It is. But, but what God would say to us today, I believe as we look back on this event, is, folks, we can be different. We can be individuals who can change the course of our lives because of what we recognize God doing in the moment of them. We can welcome the king. We can participate in the offer of the kingdom if we will do what they did not do. So what did they not do? Let me give you three things this morning that I think if we will pay attention to these three things our welcome of the king will be exorbitant. It will be richly placed out before him. So number one, what did they not do but we must do? We must look for more than miracles from Jesus. We must look for more than miracles from Jesus. Look again at Luke 19. Verse 37 says, As he was drawing near to the city, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God, right? With a loud voice for all the mighty works he had done. And they're quoting the Old Testament. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And notice what happens. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because they heard the Psalms being quoted, applied to Jesus as the Messiah, and they said, hey, cut it out. This isn't appropriate. And Jesus answers, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones will cry out. You can't deny this moment. You have to remember the fact that Jesus had just in the weeks preceding done some outstanding miracles, right? So he had healed a crippled woman um, who had been demon-possessed for 18 years, and he cast the demon out. He had healed 10 lepers, he had given sight to a completely blind beggar. He brought Lazarus back to life. After he'd been dead for four days, and the King James Version says, he stinketh. And he did, right? He brings him completely back to vibrant life. And the people are energized about Jesus and what he can do. They're so excited, and that's incredibly natural. I think we would be too. but. Jesus points out to us in his miracles that miracles were always designed to reveal God's power. And they met felt needs, and they showed God is in control, and they demonstrated his care. So this was what happened with miracles. But folks, God doesn't do miracles to wow us. He does miracles to woo us to himself. If you look at all of the miracles in Scripture, so think about this for just a minute. Think about all the times in the Bible you saw miracles, right? You can group them into four categories, four different eras of miracles. So what would one of the first ones be? The first era when miracles are happening, it's with, with Moses, right? And you've got the parting of the Red Sea, you've got all the plagues, you've got all the manna in the wilderness, you've got all these miracles happening. Why do they happen? Why does God send the miracles? What's his purpose? It is to convince Pharaoh and the Egyptian people that Yahweh is the supreme God and the gods of Egypt are not. To authenticate his messenger, Moses, and his message. That's why the miracles were happening at that time. What's the next era? What's the prophets, right? Elijah, Elisha. And you see all of these miracles that they do at that period of time in Israel's history where Israel is departing from God. And the purpose again is why? What's to authenticate His messenger and His message to call Israel back to Yahweh? What's the next error? This is an easy one. If it looks like a squirrel, acts like a squirrel, in Sunday school, it's always Jesus, right? That's always the answer. It doesn't matter what the question is. It was the era of Jesus, and miracles are rampant. Why is He doing miracles to authenticate the Messenger and the message. That there's a change in covenant. You don't have to obey the law anymore to earn your salvation. It's given to you as a free act of grace through Jesus Christ. And so it's, again, it has a purpose, not just to wow us, but to woo us to Jesus. What's the fourth era of miracles that we will begin to see again? The book of Revelation, right? When you begin to see miracles done again, and now they're televised across the the globe. And again, the purpose is what? To authenticate the messenger. You guys are listening. This is great. The messenger, right? And to authenticate the message. God is speaking to an unbelieving world, demonstrating that he is addressing all of mankind's wickedness and calling all to repentance. So God always does miracles, but they're to point us to the person of Christ, to the word of Christ to transform our inner person, not just our physical well-being, not just our physical world, to change us. Because the Word of God is what is, if you quote Scripture, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing of soul. You know, it gets inside of us like a four-year-old and rampages around pulling things out of closets. It was in the Word of God that God told the Jews exactly what day He would enter Jerusalem. Did you know that? He wrote it for them over 500 years earlier through the prophet Daniel and told them exactly what day to stand on the outside and expect that Messiah to show up. We find it in Daniel chapter 9. We'll put it here on the screen for you. This is from the Living Bible because it puts it into our terms. Notice what it says. Now listen. It will be 49 years plus 434 years. We're used to hearing the words seven sevens, that type of thing. But when you put it into years, it's 49 years plus 434 years, a total of 483 years from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem. So here's that one marker, command to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes. Is that pretty clear? Well, if you're paying attention, it is. Jerusalem's streets and walls will be rebuilt despite the perilous times, and after this period of 434 years, the anointed will, will be killed, and his kingdom still unrealized. That's Palm Sunday. That's the message of Palm Sunday. It's an unrealized kingdom yet. And a king will arise whose armies will destroy the city and his temple. That's what Jesus told them as he's going into Jerusalem. They'll be overwhelmed as with a flood and war, and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. Has Jerusalem ever really had peace since the time of Jesus? No. They haven't. So Daniel writes this prophetic statement about the coming Messiah some 500 years earlier, and notice this. You can track the time frame. So King Artaxerxes gives this command, go back and rebuild the city. Go back and rebuild the temple. When was that given? March 5th, 444 B.C. We know that historically. So there's our beginning point, right? And then it says, moving forward from that point, 483 years later, which if you use the Jewish calendar, which is a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar, that's 173,880 days Now, if you're good at math, which I am not, that's why I went into the soft sciences. But if you just count it out, guess what you end up with? March 30th, 33 A.D. What day did Jesus enter Jerusalem? March 30th, 33 A.D. To the day. So if you'd been a good biblical scholar, if the Pharisees had really paid attention, they would have known the exact day that their king would enter Jerusalem. And can you now feel the poignancy a little bit more of Jesus' comment? If you, if you had only known what this day would bring you. He felt that. Folks, we may be in need of a miracle today. I don't know your life and where you've come from this week, But it may be that that you need a supernatural supply of finances. That would not be unusual in this day and age, with all the things happening uh, in our world. You may need to have an unbelievable healing of your body, or that of a loved one. Uh, It may be that you need a changed home environment. Perhaps it's simply the restoration of relationships with others that you're looking at. That that would be a, a true miracle, or maybe a new job, a replacement vehicle, retirement funds, uh, whatever it might be. And folks, God can provide that for you when he knows it's in your ultimate best interest and to his glory. He can do that. God still does miracles today. But of greater importance to him and to us is this, that we pursue his presence We pursue his word and his love and his peace, which only comes to us as we spend time with him in his word. John 6.30 states it very well. It says, they asked him, what miraculous sign will you do, will you give that we may see it and believe you? So give us something powerful, give us something wowish, and then we'll believe in you. And they said, our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. They went back to the Moses era. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What does Jesus say to them? I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who gives you the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the true bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Do you see how he balances the miracles and the message? And he says, all this fun, great, exciting stuff that's going on is to authenticate me and my message in your life. So Jesus resets our pursuit. And and may I ask you this morning, which would you rather have? A miracle from God or a message from God? What would we prefer? Something that would powerfully change the circumstances of our life or something that would change who I am at my deepest level? We need to Look for something more than miracles from Jesus. Secondly, something else they didn't do that we can do is we must recognize his authority over his popularity. Recognize his authority, his right to rule over his popularity, what people thought of him. John 11, verse 45. We'll have it on the screens. You can look in your scriptures if you'd like. It says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, that is raising Lazarus, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin and they said, what are we accomplishing? Here's this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up, and he says this, and I want you to notice his comments. They're so important for us. He says, You know nothing at all. Do you not realize it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? He didn't say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation But not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So one crowd is entranced with his power to turn death on its head. And they're celebrating and singing and dancing, and they're going into Jerusalem. There's another crowd among them who are journalists who simply carry the story to their interested audience, the Pharisees, and they just report what happened. And then you get this other crowd who are only concerned about his popularity and how it impacts and diminishes theirs. And there's only one person in this text who actually gets it right. Caiaphas, of all people. Caiaphas nails it. Notice. What he says, verses 49 through 52, this one man must die for the people. John tells us this was an unplanned prophetic statement. He didn't know he was stating the truth, the reality of that moment. But through the death of Jesus, what would he do? He'd draw the Jewish nation back to himself, but he would invite all the children of God to become a part of the kingdom even a dying thief on the cross, who could do nothing to save himself. They're all invited. Let me ask you this, how possible is it today that one person could draw all people from all over the world to themselves and unite them as one? I teach a Geography of Israel course for Bio University. We're just wrapping it up now. And every time I teach this, we ask the students to have as a major project to bring peace to the Middle East. And they have to research the Palestinian side, and we have authors who are pro-Palest- excuse me, pro-Palestinian, and we have other authors who are pro-Israeli, and they have to read both sides, and they have to reflect on the injustices of both sides, and who owns the land, and who has the right to this or that. And then we say to them, all right, you need to make peace in the Middle East. And every one of them goes... Are you kidding me? There has not been peace in the Middle East since the days of Jesus, and before that even. So how possible is it that one man could do all of this? What would it take to accomplish bringing everyone together as one? It would take authority, the right to rule. And isn't it beautiful that in Scripture, guess what Jesus ultimately does? Now, the Antichrist tries it first, But Jesus brings peace to the Middle East for a thousand-year millennium. So Caiaphas, of all people, gets it right. Jesus does have this authority. And the only question at that point was, who will recognize it? So folks, let me ask you, why do you follow Jesus? Why do I follow Jesus? Is it because he's the popular guy, he's he's done amazing things, everybody seems to really like him, and you you come to church with your family, and that's kind of the thing to do, And, and because it's a good thing, or is it his power to change the circumstances of life? Why do you and I follow Jesus? Is it his popularity, or is it his authority? Have you been captivated by the authority and purposes of Jesus to change you? in the kingdom of God. You see, when we invite people to trust Jesus Christ, we're not asking them to add Jesus to their lives. We're asking them to add themselves to the kingdom. That was the drum Jesus beat all the time. Come and be a part of my kingdom. Come and be my subject. Come and be loved by me, rather than I will come and just be a part of your life. This is why once a week Sunday kind of thing just doesn't cut it in the Christian life. How do we demonstrate that authority of Jesus in our lives? What does that look like for you and I, that He is the King? Number three, we must understand that the future is impacted by the present. Now this one's a little easier to to think through, but notice again in Luke 19, he approaches Jerusalem, he sees the city, he begins to weep over it. If you, only you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now, he says, it is hidden from your eyes. There's something that happened in that moment. You could have had it, it's gone. It's available to you, sorry, no more. Because they didn't recognize the time of his coming to him. And what he's saying to us is the outcome of our future, ultimately our eternal destiny, is decided in the moment of the present. What's happening right now? This is why the word of God says, today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. You don't know if you have tomorrow, right? And so he, he says to the Jewish people, your actions right now are impacting your future. The 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem is now on the timetable for Israel. They were a lot like Arthur. Arthur was invited by his friend Walter to go on a drive in Orange County California. So Arthur got in the car with Walter. They cruised down I-5 for a while. They pulled off on a onto a surface street, which as they took it further became a small road, which eventually became a dirt road, and they ended up in this orange orchard. And they get out of the car, and Walter begins to describe to Arthur, to his friend in, in colorful and vibrant images, the wonderful things that he was going to build on this track of land. And he wanted Arthur to benefit from what he was going to do. And so he says to Arthur, I want you to buy up the orange groves around this property that I've, I've recently bought. Because you know what? The day is coming when my development is going to be here and that, those properties are going to be sky high in terms of cost. You'll never afford them. And Arthur thought to himself, the odds and the risks of this venture are staggering. I don't think he can do it. And so years later, Walt uh, uh, Art explained um, why he didn't. He refused to get involved in this project. He declined. Several years later, Disneyland was built on that property. Yeah, Walt Disney and Art, Art Linkletter. I don't know how many of you know Art Linkletter, right? Art Linkletter was the guest of honor at the 50th anniversary of Disneyland's opening. In fact, I think we have a picture of him here. And notice his, notice his ears. There's Mickey with 50th. He was the guest of honor at the 50th anniversary, and he tells this story about Walt Disney inviting him down to this orange grove that he's gonna build, and hey, buy the land around it, because you're gonna really be blessed if you do. And he says, What could I say? I knew my friend Walt Disney was wrong. I knew that he had let his dreams get the best of his common sense, so I mumbled something about a tight money situation and promised I would look into the whole thing a little later on. Which, when he did, guess what? He couldn't afford the land. So this good friend of Walt Disney, who, by the way, wrote the introduction to the book, How to Be Like Walt, capturing the Disney magic every day of your life, the guy who led the 50th anniversary celebration of the happiest homecoming on Earth celebration, turned down the chance of a lifetime. What happened? He forgot the fact that this moment impacts the future. And men and women and young people, Walt Disney had an amazing vision to build the magic kingdom. Jesus is building a new kingdom. A kingdom that will change our lives and our perspectives and our hopes and our joys and our peace. It will change our future. And he invites us today, will you come and be a part of my kingdom? Will we be like art? Or will we be like Walt and believe in the vision, the dream? So let me conclude this morning with these three things. Number one, will you look for God's message over his miracles? Number two, will you recognize his authority over his popularity? Follow him not because it's a fun and popular thing to do. Follow him because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he has the right to rule. And number three, understand that the future is impacted by the present. You and I, in this moment, have the opportunity to welcome him as king, to tuck ourselves into his kingdom, to submit to his authority, and find our lives transformed by this king, who controls all things, and will one day bring the whole world, those who follow him, into one place with a united heart to love him and serve him. He says, will you come today? Because guess what? Tomorrow is only a possibility. We don't know. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus into our world to right our wrongs, to rule over our struggles, uh, to bring peace rather than pressures, to be our rightful ruler uh, who is benevolent, who is uh, generous, uh, kind, forgiving, uh, merciful, and, and gracious. Oh God, thank you for sending Jesus and not abandoning us to our sinful ways and to the end result, the consequences of those. Father, soften our hearts this morning. Guide our thoughts to welcome Jesus as king. It's as simple, Father, you've told us, it's as simple as recognizing I cannot change myself. I have sins and patterns and habits and things in the past I would love to change, but I can't change any of that, but Jesus can. He can forgive my past. He can offer me a new future. But it's in this moment that we choose one way or the other. God, help us to choose Jesus as king. May we not make the same mistakes the Jewish people made that brought ruin and wreckage in their lives. Father, help us to humbly, thoughtfully, eagerly hear Jesus' voice again today, inviting us. And may we believe in him, Father, and may we live eternally through him. We pray this in Jesus' name.